This week on Beyond Consulting, we have a very special episode. What you are about to hear is the first episode from our sister podcast, also sponsored by ECA Partners, called Not So Private Equity. On Not So Private Equity, we talk with leaders inside of the world of private equity. We talk with founders and partners at private equity firms. We talk with investment bankers who sell businesses to private equity firms. And we talk with leaders inside of private equity portfolio companies. You'll hear stories about transactions, about building businesses, and learn all about the different types of investing that are captured underneath of the umbrella of private equity. You'll find the Not So Private Equity podcast anywhere you can find the Beyond Consulting podcast. Stick around. The first episode of Not So Private Equity starts now. Hey, y'all. This is Steven, co-host of Not So Private Equity. We have a great discussion ahead of us today. But before we dive in, I want to thank our sponsor, ECA Partners. ECA is an executive search and on-demand consulting firm specializing in low and mid-market private equity. To learn more about ECA's services, you can reach them through their website, eca-partners.com, or message me directly and I'll point you in the right direction. Now, I'm very excited to introduce our guest, Jerry Harmon. Jerry is the founder and chairman of Avante Capital Partners, a woman-owned private credit and structured equity fund. They invest in established companies with 3 to $20 million in EBITDA. Jerry, welcome to Not So Private Equity. Thank you, Stephen. I'm delighted to be here. We're very excited to have you here. Let's go ahead and jump in at the beginning. I want to understand your career and how you ended up leading a private equity firm. Sure. Well, given I've been over 35 years in the industry, there's, (laughs) I'll try to be brief, but (laughs) there's a number of things potentially to unpack there. So I actually started, believe it or not, undergrad as a dance major. So always fun fact to start with. Ended up with a degree in quantitative analysis and then went on to get my MBA at Berkeley in finance. So that kind of led me to the new, still creative path in my career. Then I joined Prudential Capital, which is one of the larger institutional investors in the private investing industry. A lot of people don't know insurance companies are big players in investing, particularly in private equity and private credit. So I spent 11 years there, took on a lot of senior roles, but eventually left Prue to move from San Francisco to the East Coast and then back to L.A., So I went from doing some investment banking to joining American Capital, where I was asked to start their Los Angeles office, which meant building the team, building the market presence, building the portfolio, which we managed out of the LA office. Then four years later, I was recruited by another multi-billion dollar BDC or business development company called Allied Capital. In the Allied's case, I was responsible for the entire Western US and then also joined Allied's investment committee. So across between Allied and American Capital, I invested over $650 million in a couple dozen transactions and had a great track record. But 2009 hit, really 2008 is when the financial markets were collapsing, as everybody may remember. So most of the publicly traded funds, including Allied and American Capital, but Allied in particular where I was, we're starting to shut down offices and redo, you know, have kind of reduction forces and so forth. I actually left a little bit before then, anticipating some of this. And really it was one of those forks in the road we all face and could either go join another firm where I felt that wasn't happening or start my own firm. A lot of people encouraged me at the time to start my own fund. It wasn't something I had started out my career thinking I was going to do. I didn't have that entrepreneurial spirit that many have from day one. I enjoyed working for large institutions and 
did well there, but it was really interesting to me to be able to control my own destiny. And since I had a good track record and people who were willing to join me and invest in, in the fund, we launched Avante Capital Partners. So I put the team together. We embarked on our fundraising in 2009, which was crazy time to raise a fund, as you can imagine. What doesn't kill you makes you stronger, <laughs> which is clearly the case here. But thankfully, we were successful. We raised a $218 million fund then went on to raise another $250 million fund in 2015, and we just finished raising a $450 million fund last year. So that's how Avante came to be. I'll talk more about what we do in a little bit. But the other thing, just in terms of my journey, is along the way, I've been on over 20 boards, many of them from my portfolio companies. But then also a few years back, I joined a public board not related to my investment activity at Avante, and then actually eventually became chair of that public company board. So I've been very involved in the board world as well, kind of straddling both. I'm excited to learn more about the board world. I think a lot of our audience is curious about that as well, because it's a great and interesting way to spend the later part of someone's career and, and leverage all their experience to help companies grow and provide advice there. Before we jump into that, I want to hear more about Avante. Of course, it's a well-established firm at this point. You've been through lots of market changes. Can you tell us how Avante fits within the broader investment landscape or private equity landscape and perhaps how it's changed throughout the years or how you've pivoted given different market conditions? Sure. Well, let me talk about the landscape first and then get more into detail about what Avante does and how we fit in there. So, you know, if you look at the private equity landscape, there's really different stages in types of private equity investing. It really starts with what's probably most commonly known, which is the venture capital side of it. But even venture capital has different types. You have seed or startup stage. Then you have early stage, late stage. So it really, you know, again, there's a maturity level there that or a spectrum that even within venture capital, you know, you have to be thoughtful about. Then the next type of private equity is I kind of characterize it as growth. These are established companies, but they're in their you know high growth stage. They may or may not be profitable but they have clearly proven their business model from a product or service point of view of starting to achieve scale and so forth. Then we move into the buyout side. These are more mature companies that are now going to go through a change in control. And by the way, growth is usually minority investing, not control. So now we move into control investing or buyouts where you you have hundreds and hundreds of private equity funds that are focused on making these acquisitions of companies you know, for control. And that, what I call kind of more mature part of the, the business. And then the final category I would mention is distressed. So even within buyouts, you can be looking at healthy, growing companies, but then you also have a whole different world of companies that are not performing well or in distressed situations or turnarounds. And that's a whole category of investing by itself. The other way to look at the private equity landscape is also size. So you have the different stages or types of investing, but then you also have the size. There are those who focus on what I call small cap or lower middle market, which are the smaller end, you know, typically less than 20 million of EBITDA, usually less than a couple hundred million of revenues. So that, you know, to get a sense of size, then you're looking at middle market, which is the next size category. Again, definitions vary, by the way, these are just kind of my approximations to give people a sense. So in the middle market, you're looking at typically above 20 million, but probably below 75, maybe below 50 million of EBITDA. And then finally, large cap, which would obviously be above all that. Again, the cutoffs can vary, but you get a sense of that. So, you know, you have the big guys who do, you know, the Carlisles and the KKRs, et cetera, of the world. 
focused on these large cap, you have lots of middle market funds, and you have some that focus on these smaller, lower middle market, sub 20 million of EBITDA companies. So where do we fit in? Avante is lower middle market. So that lower end, you know, the, for us, it's three to 20 million of EBITDA, kind of 20 to 150 million of revenues, healthy companies, so not distressed, smaller or lower middle markets already risky enough without adding the distressed side of it. We are also focused on the buyout side. So we're not in venture, we're not in growth per se, we're not in distressed, as I mentioned. So we're really focused on the buyout or what we call sponsor driven. So what that means, and we're really, as you mentioned earlier, a private credit and structured equity fund. So that means we focus on debt and equity investing in the lower middle market in sponsored transactions. So what does that mean? That means we partner with these private equity buyout funds to finance their deals. So we're providing term debt, we're providing subordinated or mezzanine debt, but we're also co-investing in the equity alongside of them. That's where the equity part comes in. Probably about 80 plus percent, 80 to 85% of our investments are in these debt securities, along, you know, financing these buyouts. And the balance of call it 10 to 20% are in equity co-investments alongside these private equity shops. So I should mention that a lot of another distinction sometimes in our world is sponsored versus non-sponsored. So the sponsored is partnering with the private equity. If we were doing non-sponsored, which we plan to do in the future, by the way, we would be investing directly in companies in non-change and control deals, just providing financing, providing equity, growth capital, or what have you. It just would not be a change of control transaction. We're based in Los Angeles, but we focus across the U.S. So we're investing. Our portfolio is really pretty widely spread across the U.S., we are generalists. Not all funds are. Some are very focused on a specific sector. We happen to be generalists, which many private credit funds are. But we do a lot in healthcare, business services, light industrial, consumer, tech-enabled, software, and for-profit education. We stay away from real estate. That's a really different world in the alternative space. We stay away from turnarounds, stay away from commodity businesses, those kinds of things. We have 20 team members. We are, as you mentioned, 100% women and minority owned, which is very important to us. And 80% of our team are women, minorities, or both. So the final thing I'll say about Avante to understand kind of who we are really and how we approach our market, our purpose clearly is to generate strong returns for our investors, which thankfully we do and have, because that enables us to pursue what is really our passion, which is to increase diversity in our industry and thereby increase access to capital for underserved markets and underserved groups. Appreciate that, Jared. That was a very concise overview of private equity. I'll probably steal those distinctions as I talk to folks too and, and ask questions about private equity, but curious about the emphasis on diversity and if that's been a part of Avante since its beginning or if that has evolved along with the firm. I would say that we've always been highly inclusive which led to a real focus on a more intentional basis on diversity as we recognize the value of diversity, not only just in our attitude about hiring, right, but really in how we do business. So diversity has become a really big strategic imperative for us and an advantage. It's helped us to recruit and retain the best talent in our funnels wider because we are focused on diverse, right, everybody who has the requisite skill set. We don't fish always in the same ponds. So we find some great people and maybe have to train them a little bit differently because their backgrounds may not be the same as your, your typical past in private equity. But we've gotten built just a fantastic team that's one of the more, most diverse in the industry. 
It's also been really important, even in fundraising, limited partners or investors are investing in funds are really focused on diversity. Why? Because it produces better results. I mean, diverse teams, diverse boards, diverse management have better results. I mean, that's been proven for, through a number of studies. So better decision making with diverse backgrounds and experiences and so forth. So we think better decision making, I think more openness to different ideas, right? So when we go to investment committee, everybody has input, right? Everybody's respected and heard. So how we conduct our business, how we make decisions at the investment committee level is informed by diversity. It also has really impacted how we find and win our business. So we try to add value to our sponsors, the private equity people we partner with, so that we can win our deals, find our deals, but win them without over-levering or underpricing. And we do that by trying to add value. And we do that in a number of ways that are not diversity related, but on the diversity front, we have helped put together a SBIC Diverse Intern Scholar Program, which is an undergrad program for you know, women and people of color. We put the whole program together, place people or help place people across last year, over 30 funds across the country. And then we put the training program together and the speaker program, the whole cohort. So we brought, you know, speakers every couple days a week, model training, et cetera, but really allowing and helping these private equity funds, these SBICs to access this diverse talent at the beginnings, the supply issue, right? That's always the complaint supply. So we're helping on the supply end and we're helping not only find them, but, you know, open our world up to them to make sure that they look at private equity and private credit as a career path and show that they're welcome and do provide the confidence and nurturing that's important as well. One of the most more interesting and board-related things we've done recently on the diversity front, which may be of interest, is we started something called the Women's Operating Network, or ONE, W-O-N, and that's a database we're building of board-qualified, board-ready women who may or may not have been on a board before. Many have, but if they haven't, that's okay, as long as they have the requisite skill set and experience to be on a board, right? C-level experience, functional expertise, sector expertise. And the purpose of that is twofold. One, to help these women access private equity-owned company boards, but also to help, again, the value add to the private equity side, to help them access talent, but particularly diverse talent at the board level and potentially operating talent too if they're looking for a CEO or something at the portfolio company level. It's more board focused, but it could be operating as well being able to help on those fronts. We've helped women who have launched, or mentor women who are launching their own funds. So all these things are helping increase diversity in the private equity world, helping us strategically to form these value-added relationships, as well as the kind of the culture aspects of diversity within our firm, which we feel allows us, again, to attract and retain the best talent. So that's long-winded maybe way of answering your question on diversity, but it's something we're very passionate about because at the end of the day, it produces results. We've been top quartile or top decile returns and across our first two funds and hopefully on the way with that for our second, third fund. So that's incredible, Jerry. And I want to hear more about one woman's operating network. But before we chat about that and, and the board details in depth, want to chat about a couple of things. So Avante adds a lot of value to the private equity firms, right? I certainly understand the supply issue that you talked about. Private equity firms, of course, run into that because they are looking for folks who are from these top tier investment banks. And how do you get into a top tier investment bank? You go to a, an Ivy League school and the diversity issue happens much lower in that funnel. So by the time they come up and look like the folks, you know, the resume looks like a, a private equity resume, the diversity at that point in that group of people is, is quite low. So it takes a lot of effort to find folks 
outside of those, you know, the, the normal pipeline there that can add value to the private equity firms. So you're adding value to the private equity firms. You're adding social value as well, opening up capital to other groups of people that don't generally know how to go about finding it or it just hasn't been historically provided to them. That seems to butt against the stigma that we hear often about private equity. Uh, can you tell us a little bit more about that? Is, is the general stigmas around private equity that they come in, cut jobs, and generally reduce the value of company in, in certain ways and harm employment? And whether or not you think that that's true for the broader private equity community and that you stand alone in the value that you bring to the table, or if that stigma is a bit misguided or perhaps outdated? Yeah, it's a great question. Just to back up one second, though, on value add, by the way, you know, as mentioned, the diversity value add, we do other value. We help provide, we help them with diligence, the, the firms we work with, we help them access customers. We've actually brought in customers for some of our portfolio companies. We help bring in other executives, you know, not diverse related and board members and so forth. So there are a variety of ways we add value, so to speak, to our private equity partners that hopefully differentiate us, but <laughs> beauty's in the eye of the beholder. So just to be clear, there's the differentiation vis-a-vis -vis diversity, which is also value add, but there's other aspects too to value add. In terms of private equity stigma, that's been around for a long time, as you intimated. And I would say that it's probably used to be more true than it is today. I'm not saying it was totally true, even in the, historically, that I think a lot of it is exaggeration or misrepresentation but or misperception, but particularly politically, <laughs> right? Let's go after the people you know appear to be making a lot of money or those kinds of things and not looking at what, how they're doing it. So I would say it's a stigma that still exists, but less so, that there always are bad players or bad behaviors in every industry, right? Whether it be industry, sector, political, nonprofit, profit, it, you know, they're bad players. So there's clearly going to be some bad players, right? People who don't behave the way we'd all like them to behave in the private equity industry. But by and large, you know, the private equity industry is are not bad players. They are trying to create value in the companies that they invest in. They're trying to make money for their investors, which, by the way, a lot of the investors in private equity are pension funds. So providing re high returns for these pension funds, you know, which is a real service and benefit. Everyone who's subject to a public pension fund, you know, unions and all sorts of other constituencies. And they typically are doing that by growing these companies, actually increase employment, right? Making them more stable, making them more sustainable, investing in you know their growth, whether it be CapEx or new markets or new locations or what have you. It's about value creation at the end of the day. Now, sometimes they get in and see that to get to the end result, you have to reorganize the company. It's not usually the case, but that can be, right? For companies that have been underperforming or maybe you know have a cost structure that's not sustainable, then yes, they have to cut people or cut costs. They have to redirect the strategy, but they're not doing it to drive the business out of, you know, to drive it out of business because they don't make money, right? So at the end of the day, yes, they're looking to make money, they meaning private equity, but they're typically doing it in a way that's good for society and good for the businesses even if there's some short-term pain occasionally, not always. That's how I think of private equity. Now, again, it has been vilified. Private equity's done a horrible job in PR, which has really allowed these misperceptions to take place. And then the other thing is, you know, the public and the politicians think about private equity through the eyes of the big, big, large-cap private equity buyout shops, by and large, and hedge funds, right? 
Well, that's a different world. I'm not saying that world doesn't also do good things, but that's just different. Yeah, those guys make a lot of money, right, <laughs> in terms of their own personal wealth. And there's a lot going on there. But a lot of the private equity world, these middle market and lower middle market funds like ours that I referred to earlier in terms of different categories, are working with smaller businesses and really helping them to grow and to become stronger and truly create jobs. The SBIC program, Small Business Investment Company program, which is a public-private partnership with the SBA, with the government, where you get licensed, and where all our funds are SBICs, by the way, it's been around for over 50 years. It's a program where the, you get licensed by the SBA to, and you, they provide low-cost leverage to help us invest. So if we raise $100 million of private LP or limited partner capital, we get maybe $175 million of low-cost debt, so maximum is $175 per fund. That's long-term, and now we're investing $275 million if you add those two up. Well, all that money goes into these smaller businesses, smaller meaning 3 to 20 EBITDA, as I mentioned earlier, and if you look at the results of the overall program across all the funds, I think there's over 200 SBICs in the program at any given time. And it's had enormous job creation results. And that's the government's data, right? So it's just an example of even when you look at what's not always seen is what's happening in the smaller end of the market where small businesses really drive the economy. And there's a lot of private equity going into these smaller, lower middle market businesses and programs like the SBIC program, but also other programs. So that's my response to the stigma. It is there. We're not good at addressing it as an industry as a whole, but it really is. It's less, and it's definitely, in my mind, a misperception of what private equity is and can be. But there are always going to be bad PR stories. Some private equity funding went in and did the wrong thing, or it didn't work out as planned. That happens. Of course. And as you mentioned, the low mid-market sector, which you operate in, and of course here at ECA, that's most of our clients are the private equity firms and those portfolio companies. And I've found that almost every time when you dive into the stories of those portfolio companies that the private equity firms are involved with, it's not uncommon that the story is a company was built by someone and they want to retire, but the only way to do that is to sell the company off, right? So this is an opportunity for them to leave it in good hands so that their employees can continue to have a job and flourish. Because if they, the other option is to retire and shut down the business, right? Yeah. So I think that you're right. Yeah. I think that brings up, there's really two things, reasons that someone sells to a private equity fund. One, as you said, they're retiring. They need to have an exit for themselves and want it to go in the hands of someone that will keep the employees, hopefully grow the company, et cetera. The other is that they realize that it's a company that's not, that the owners are not looking to exit yet in terms of they want to continue to be involved in running the business, but they realize they need help and capital to take the company to the next level. And that's not uncommon at all. So you actually will have the entrepreneur or the family owner stay in the business for some period of time, at least, maybe in a different role, maybe not, to bring in this, sell the control to bring in this capital to help them grow, to give them some liquidity. Of course, they're going to take some chips off the table. But that's a fairly common scenario. Yeah, that's a good point. I've seen it happen before where you'll have someone who, brilliant scientist, a PhD in computer engineering, they built a great product, built an incredible business. And at some point, it's helpful to have someone come in who knows the how to scale businesses effectively and give them a piece of the business. And, and everyone really does benefit in those scenarios. Let's hear more about the board side of your business. First, can you tell us why companies have boards? 
Well, boards are really for governance, right? To make sure that the shareholders are represented, their interests are represented. And as you know, there's different kinds. I mean, it's really important to understand the different boards. You know, the boards have fiduciary responsibilities. That's actually a legal term, which I'm not a lawyer, so I'm not going to get too much into defining that. But basically, it's looking out for the best interest of the shareholders. If the company is not if the company's insolvent, that also can mean looking out for the best interest of the lenders, because at that point, that's who effectively whose interests are most important at that point. But it's to understand the different types of boards. I mean, you're talking about, you know, everyone understands public boards, right? You know, publicly traded companies, they have a boards and that are very structured and very defined in terms of what has to be done, how they're supposed to do it, you know, one of the requirements and responsibilities. And we can talk more about what that looks like. Then you're talking about private boards. But private boards, I categorize two buckets. One are private equity-owned boards, which we were kind of alluding to earlier. So these are companies that are owned more than 50% by the private equity firms, and they have put a board together. But their boards look very different than a public board. And the roles and responsibilities can look really different too, and I'm happy to compare and contrast that in a minute. But the other type of private board is a normal family office or entrepreneurially owned company, right? A non-public company that's not owned by a private equity firm. And that can be a business been in the you know the family for years. And they have boards because they're required to have a board legally. You have to have it, you know, for legal and corporation and other reasons. But how they operate may be, you know, very informal, <laughs> may not really be anywhere close to what a public board or a private equity board might look like. Or it could, if it's a larger private company, look very, operate very much, almost like a public company board. So it really does vary, and we can talk more about that. There's also nonprofit boards, SPAC boards, advisory boards, board observer roles, where you don't actually have a voting board seat, but you have a you know, you have an observer role, which is kind of advisory or monitoring in some cases. And then the final category of boards, I would say, are governance, government agency or commission type boards, which is a whole different world, which I'm not equipped to get into, but that's just to round out the description. It's important for people that are looking at boards and looking at going on a board to really understand the differences between these different boards. I mean, the commonality is you have a responsibility. You know, you have a legal, once you're on a board, you have a legal responsibility and you need to understand what that looks like. And that's this fiduciary responsibility I mentioned, which typically means to represent the shareholders. But whether the board really controls, whether the board is truly independent versus not independent makes a huge difference. So in a private equity owned board, the private equity fund controls the board. They may bring on one or two independent board members or much larger companies, maybe more. But at the end of the day, the private equity firm controls the decisions, controls the board. They're the control owner. So your role on a private equity owned company board is different. They're bringing independent board members on to help in the value creation process. So they might be looking for somebody who has market channel experience in a particular market channel they're looking to penetrate. Maybe someone who's a sector expertise in the sectors they're in or want to get in. Maybe somebody who has great manufacturing operational expertise that can be value add to their, again, to the company and their value creation. It really depends on what their strategy is and where they can bring in outside expertise onto the board to help in that. It may just be somebody to kind of mentor the CEO, someone who's been a CEO or is one and comes in to mentor. So those are the kinds of people they bring in. So their role is fairly finite and very narrow in terms of what the expectation might be. It always involves strategy and input on strategy, but then beyond that, it's kind of where does their expertise apply 
what is the private equity fund looking for from them as a board member? Maybe just their Rolodex too, and for customers and things like that. In a public board, you know, you're looking at a very structured board where you have committees, you have the governance committee, you have the compensation committee, you have a chairman of the board, which may be the CEO, might be an independent non-executive chairman, like I am in my public company. But the focus of the board members in total primarily is on leadership and the CEO. The main responsibility of the board in representing shareholders, the main lever they have is to hire or fire the CEO if they're not doing the right thing, right? The saying is for board members and public companies, nose in, fingers out. So you're not operating the business. You're not getting down into the real operational aspects in terms of hands-on. You might be in the private equity-owned board or a private board, but in the public board, you're not. So you're really focused on strategy, governance, as a proper governance and oversight, reporting, compliance, and risk. There's other focus, ESG and other things, but those are the primary areas, cybersecurity, things like that, that public boards are focused on. But again, more formality, more risk, because there's more liability for public board members. But that's how I think about a public versus, say, a private equity-owned board. When you look at non-private equity-owned boards, they're really hugely vary in terms of the dynamics, right? If it's a family-owned company that's been the family for years and you're coming in as the one independent board member, you may be more of a therapist than you are <laughs> anything else because, you know, you might be dealing with family dynamics and, you know, different roles and, and conflicts. You might be looking at, or an entrepreneurial, you know, a very strong entrepreneur that has an iron fist on, on everything. And, you know, you may give advice, but it may or may not be taken, <laughs> So you have to understand what you're walking into in a non-private equity owned board, what their expectations are, what your role is, and what influence you really can have. The other difference, I think, in a non-private equity owned private board is they're more open to financial, accounting, and legal talent, as well as the functional and sector talent I mentioned with in the other regard. Both public and non-PE owned boards really do value financial, legal, and accounting talent, as well as sector and operational expertise and experience. The reason private equity doesn't is they have the financial expertise they're bringing themselves and they hire the accounting and the legal. So they don't typically look to bring that kind of knowledge or expertise onto the board, typically. So another thing, just a nuance there. I could go on and on, which I won't, but there are other differences between public, private, and then private equity and non-private equity owned private boards. But those are some of the things to think about. Does the Women's Operating Network work mostly with private equity-backed companies to fill positions on their boards? Yeah, that's the purpose. It's to help them access private equity board opportunities that particularly in the lower middle market where we play, which is much more opaque. It's harder to find and access those. It's also to help the private equity funds in the lower end of the market to access talent and particularly this, the women, diverse talent. Because again, they maybe don't have the same networks that the big guys have in doing so. If someone's listening to this and they'd like to be a, a board member at some point, how should they go about getting in touch with the Women's Operating Network? And what should they think about in terms of their background to evaluate whether or not they would be an effective board member or whether or not they are someone who should reach out to you? Well, let me give you a little bit of what we look for to go into the Women's Operating Network. We look for women who have strong C-level experience, typically. That could be a CMO, CEO, CIO, et cetera, chief people officer, what have you. But somebody who's had good C-level or divisional P&L responsibility, they're a senior executive and they've had enough industry experience 
Sector expertise is a big thing too. In any of the sectors I mentioned earlier, business services, healthcare, product or service, consumer, manufacturing, et cetera, tech enabled. And then functional expertise could be somebody's, it's they're really strong in marketing, they're really strong in IT, they're really strong in operational aspects, international, et cetera. So it's, they have to bring some combination of those things to the table. They don't have to have been on a board before, although it's nice, but it's not a requirement, but they have to be ready to be on a board. Ideally, they've reported to a board, at least to understand that dynamic, but again, it's not required, but it's helpful. In terms of accessing us, they can certainly email me their information at jerry, J-E-R-I, at avante, A-V-A-N-T-E, cap, C-A-P dot com. Or, of course, contact you, Stephen, and you know how to get to me. Yeah, of course. We're always happy to make those introductions and facilitate those conversations. Jerry, we're lots of hesitation in the market these days, early 2023. Can you tell us about trends that you're recognizing? Sure. In the private equity world and things? Yeah, private equity, yes. Absolutely. Well, I think, you know, to start with, if you look at private equity, there's for a long time now, there's been this equity overhang. I mean, there's been hundred billions and billions of dollars of private equity funds raised all of which are looking for companies to invest in. It may be in any one of the ends of the markets we talked about earlier, but it's a lot of capital chasing deals. And that's driven valuations up. So that's a struggle, right? Because you have to pay more for the company. It's harder to achieve the returns you want when you have to exit, hopefully exit a higher valuation than you bought it at. And, and certainly if you've improved the operations or increased the, the EBITDA and the revenues, then you know even if it's the same multiple, hopefully you've increased value. You know, you've done well, but nevertheless, valuation continues to be a problem. Even in a market right now, which is more difficult, and I'll mention why it's more difficult, valuation is still high for the good companies. It's just people are chasing what's happening now when you have a difficult economic environment and a lot of headwinds in different areas is that the market becomes more selective. Those marginal deals, more difficult deals are harder to get done, right? They don't get this, those companies don't sell, or they certainly don't sell anywhere near the kind of valuation they would like. So they tend to go off the market, but those good companies, the growing solid companies, that's what everyone's chasing. So you have a lot of dollars chasing those deals and that keeps those valuations up. I will say though, that right now it feels like valuations are moderating. You know, they're not continuing to increase right now. Some cases they come down a little bit, which is good, but they're coming down from pretty big multiples. The other big thing that's happening right now is debt availability. You know, a lot of the banks have retreated because of the economic environment and uncertainties and headwinds. And so you've got fewer players on the debt side, at least the more traditional commercial banks playing. There are lots of alternative credit funds like ours that are playing, but even everybody's pulled back a bit because there's more risk. So you have to be more thoughtful about it. And so debt availability to finance these buyouts in the private equity world is becoming more difficult and it's more costly because rates have gone up. So now it costs more and you can and debt, the amount of debt you can get to leverage your transaction to support your purchase price and to support your valuation is less. So that if you can't get more debt, your returns are going to be lower by definition, right? Because you're not getting the benefit of leverage. And then the interest costs have gone up, which has impacted availability. But, you know, I mentioned all this more difficult environment. I mean, no news to anybody listening. You're talking about inflation, labor issues, supply chain issues, recession. And then for the companies that already have the leverage on their balance sheets, the increase, if they have a lot of floating rate leverage, now you've got interest rates going up significantly. So their margin for error, their debt service coverages are much lower and more scary. That's what I meant by headwinds. 
I think the other thing to recognize that's happened in the private equity world, it used to be a lot about financial engineering. You go and buy in a company, you buy low, sell high, and you use leverage, <laughs> right? Now, the focus, both from the investors into the funds, what they look for, what kind of funds they like to invest in, and the funds themselves have recognized that it's really value creation, operational excellence that's going to create value, and financial engineering is not the main tool. So it's a different mindset. And then I would say that the final comment I'd make in what's happening in the private equity world is there's an increased focus on diversity. I think it's a lot more talk than action, but there's more action than there used to be. So it's it's going in a good direction, but we have a long way to go on diversity. But it is a huge topic, uh, both limited partners as well as the funds themselves. And many of them are really trying genuinely and authentically to embrace diversity and do what they need to do to adopt it and to implement it. Because at the end of the day, a firm is only as good as the talent they can recruit and retain. That's what it comes down to. And that's the big challenge for the industry is recruiting and retaining top talent especially diverse talent. So those are all the things I would say are happening that people might want to be aware of in the private equity industry. Appreciate that, Jerry. And I know that Avante, regardless of the headwinds, has, has found ways to succeed regardless of the market. I'm always excited to keep an eye on the portfolio because I know that you've had quite a few big wins there throughout the history of the firm. Thanks so much for joining us on Not So Private Equity. I really do always enjoy our conversations. Thank you, Stephen, for having me. It was a delight to talk with you.